know this morning that there's about 100 slots left if you're over age 65 uh, for coronavirus vaccines tomorrow. Uh, so you can talk to Sue Towner or you can sign up uh, on the Department of Health website, but there is still availability for uh, some vaccine tomorrow. Let me read to you Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 29, through the end of the chapter, and then we will pray. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Father, we thank you that you powerfully work not only within us, not only among us, but through us. That you have called us to be ministers of the new covenant. That we are to be uh, heralds of your grace, calling people, imploring people to be reconciled to you. Father, we pray that we uh, may be a church that is characterized and filled with joy, that, that even as Paul says in this, uh, this passage here, that, that even through suffering and affliction, he rejoices. May we rejoice no matter what is going on uh, in our lives or in the world around us. Uh, Lord, knowing that you are good, you are sovereign, you are in control, and that you have saved us and redeemed us and called us to yourself. We are so grateful for all that you have done for us in Christ. And may that joy be evident in us as a church. Lord, we pray that that would not only be true for us, but we think this morning of Emmanuel Lutheran and for its pastor Mark and, and as they seek to, uh, to be faithful to the gospel. Lord, I don't know much about this church, but it does seem as though they uh, desire to be faithful to the gospel, faithful to you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bless them and us in accordance with our faithfulness to the gospel, Lord, that we would never be ashamed of the gospel, knowing that it is your power to all who believe. Lord, may we always know and believe and trust and live and even worship like we believe that there is power in the gospel, that it is not our cleverness, it is not our craftiness, it is not anything that we do that brings power to your church, but the gospel of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit has power to save and may we have great confidence and trust in that. Lord, we pray this morning for Skip and Ruth Sorensen as they continue to minister in Uganda. We thank you that uh, classes started back up this month at the Bible College and that there were 20 new students who joined in. And for uh, the reported uh, improvements to the Bible College there, Lord, uh, there's much to be uh, grateful for going on there. And we thank you for what you're doing through, uh, through them and in the lives of pastors there. Uh, Lord, we pray for uh, health not only for them, but for those around them as COVID cases are on the rise in, in their community. Uh, Lord, we pray that the peace that has followed the elections last month would continue there. Uh, Lord, we've also we also pray with them as they've asked us to for, uh, for, the, for some of the pastors there who are uh, living in poverty and yet faithfully seeking to, uh, to minister your word in your church and to the world. Lord, we thank you for their faithfulness, but Father, we pray that you would uh, bring about means and ways to provide for them. Lord, we know uh, that you can, uh, but Lord, we pray that you would. Lord, we thank you that ultimately you have provided for all that they need in Christ in eternity and for us as well. Lord, we pray for West Rock Church there as they seek to minister to university students and to, to reach out with the gospel. Father, we pray that, uh, that they would be faithful to sharing the gospel and that you would uh, save people through it. Father, this morning as we turn to your word, give us open eyes to understand it, give us soft hearts to obey it, uh, and, and Lord, may the word sound forth from us, not just from the pulpit or in classes, but in our lives daily, that people would hear the gospel and be reconciled to you, and that you would do that through us, we ask in Jesus' name, 
I got a scratch in my throat. Forgive me. I, uh, I have this distinct memory. It was a pretty interesting morning. I had gone to the doctor, and I was sitting in the waiting room waiting to, to go back to the doctor. I was a little early, so I wasn't the first person called back. But this, this young gentleman, probably uh, a little handicapped, comes into the office and he is excited. He comes into the doctor's office. He goes right up to the front desk and proceeds to tell this, this lady sitting at the front desk how he had just been to a concert and he got to see the Oak Ridge Boys. He then proceeded to go around to every single person in the waiting room and announce to them with, I mean, everybody heard it. People in the next office over, in the next building over probably heard it. But man, he went through and he told every single one of us that he had gone to see the Oak Ridge Boys. And then they open the door and they call him back and he goes back and they shut the door and guess what I hear in the lobby? I got to see the Oak Ridge Boys. I mean, this guy was excited and it was really, I mean, it brought, I, don't, I don't like the Oak Ridge Boys, forgive me if you do, but... Um, but I was excited about the Oak Ridge Boys at that point in time. I was excited about what he was excited about. The truth of the matter is, we talk about what we're excited about. We talk about what, what really uh, captivates us and excites us. Just If you want to see this in action, just go to any place, anywhere, where, where somebody is doing their hobby. It could be a, a sport of some kind or crafting of, of some kind. And just tell those people, go down to the river and, and tell skiers you want to ski or uh, tell a quilter you want to learn how to quilt. I don't know. Pick anything and watch them. Watch what happens. They get excited. They get excited to tell you about it. They get excited to invite you into it. They get excited to tell you. I mean, they'll share their stuff with you. They're excited to give away what they have if you will just join in on this thing that has brought them so much joy. And I think if most of us are honest, at least I am, I offer this as a confession. Uh, oftentimes, what should be the source of our greatest joy is often most difficult to talk about with people who don't share that joy. It can be difficult and, and nerve-wracking even to, to tell people about what Jesus has done for us when, when they don't know him. I mean, it could be because we're afraid of rejection. It could be because we're afraid of criticism. It could be because we're afraid that we lack what we need to be able to answer their questions. But sadly, and far too often, Rather than speaking when I should, I, I clam up and I don't, I don't share people with, with, with them what is the greatest source of joy in my life. Well, Paul, in these verses, gives us a glimpse into what his personal ministry is like. And far from just being different than us, this is really a glimpse of what it should look like in our personal ministries. The reality of his ministry should be and, and often is the reality of our ministry. But before we dig into the text, and over the next two weeks, we're going to look at, at six realities of what uh, being a gospel minister is like, I want us to consider um, three paradoxes. It's not the right term, actually. They're not really paradoxes, but there's like two sides of a coin to everyone's personal ministry. And every one of us should think of ourselves as ministers of the gospel. Every single one of us should think of ourselves as, as servants of Jesus Christ and of others, as, as message bearers, as those who, who call people to be reconciled to God. But there's three kind of... Uh, uh, polarities maybe is a better uh, word here in gospel ministry. And the first one, this is not in your notes, but, but I'll go slow so that way you have time to write it down. It's not that difficult. Uh, the first one is, is the difference between uh, church ministry and personal ministry. Or, or maybe better yet, organized ministry and personal ministry. Well, what's the difference between the two? Organized ministries are ministries 
of the church, we'll take Trinity here as an example, that are organized by leaders, deacons, elders, uh, for the purpose uh, of gospel ministry within the body. So examples of this would be our teachers who are teaching Sunday school right now, or uh, Awana volunteers, or music ministry, or uh, first impressions, coffee, hospitality, uh, and, and I'll, I'll tell you, it, it's pretty much a constant thing in every church, as it should be. This is not a criticism, by the way, because as churches grow, there's going to be a need for more and more ministry. There's always a need for people in these ministries. There's always a need for, for help. And, and so there's, there's an organizational aspect of ministry where we join into an organized group of people inside the church who are doing the work of the ministry, and we join in with them. But, but then there's uh, our personal ministries, things that we do just because. Um, I, I learned of somebody's personal ministry just this week. I've been, I've had the privilege, it's been pretty exciting, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to go to the Christian Aid Center on Monday mornings and, and do a Bible study with the guys there. And uh, it was really neat. Last week, uh, we, we started, we're just kind of working our way through the book of Ephesians, and I'm not teaching these guys, we're, we're doing it together, and, and, and they're doing an incredibly good job of thinking through the book of Ephesians. I've been most impressed with these men. But uh, one, of the, one day, one guy comes up to me, and he says, hey, do you know Tom? I was like, Tom? I don't know, do I know Tom? Yeah, I think Tom goes to your church. Turns out it was Tom Pfeiffer, and through, uh, I think, their growth group serving meals there, he was given an invitation to teach a class there to these men on Tuesday mornings. Now, that's not an organized church ministry. It didn't go through the church. It wasn't planned here. It's not an organized thing we do. It's just being out in the world, in the community, doing what he does. He was given an opportunity to minister. And so that's a great example of what a personal ministry looks like. I believe that all of us should have both. That, that there should be areas in our life of personal ministry and areas where we serve in the church. It's not going to be a tit-for-tat thing. It's not going to be like, man, i got to weigh my hours out and make sure I'm putting 50% in the church and 50% in the world uh, or, or in a personal ministry. But I think every believer is called to do both. To just be a minister where they are, to be a minister at work uh, with our neighbors, to, to be hospitable and exercise hospitality. But we're also called to serve in the church. But, but serving in the church is never an excuse uh, to, to avoid the call on our lives personally and publicly as we go about uh, where we live, work, and play to serve the least, the last, and the lost. We're all called to have both ministry in the church and ministry outside the church. And probably for those of us who are on staff at the church, who are pastors, and we, our vocation is to work here, there is probably no one here who has a greater temptation upon their life to have all of their ministry be in the church. It's really easy for us to hide in here. It's really easy for us to make excuses. Oh, I, I don't have to minister out there. My job is to minister to the church, and the church's job is to go out and minister to the world. Well, that, that's not how it works, because first and foremost, as a vocational pastor, I'm still just part of the church. And the same responsibilities are on all of us. We, we must have a, a personal ministry, but we ought to have an organized ministry as well. Those things are going to uh, ebb and flow Maybe, maybe at one time in your life you have a, a personal ministry that you're investing in and that leads you to be less invested in an organized ministry and then that changes over time. But we should be thinking in terms of both. The, the second uh, paradox uh, or polarity, again, maybe better, is inside and outside ministry. Inside and outside ministry. Now I want to define that because I don't mean inside the, the church building and outside the church building. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, talking about a, a guy in the church in Corinth who is involved in some really serious sin, Paul says, I wrote to you not to associate with anybody who bears the name of brother and is guilty of this sin. He says, but, but I'm not talking about those inside the church, or I mean, I'm not talking about those outside the church, I'm talking about those inside the church. 
He says, because if you're going to avoid people who are living in sin outside the church, you're going to have to leave the world, right? It's just the way it is. We should expect the world to live like sinners, and we should expect the redeemed to live like the redeemed. And, and, and Paul makes this distinction of believers, that is those inside the church, and non-believers, those outside the church. I want to get on a soapbox for a minute here, and I want to say that I, I believe firmly that inside and outside the church is the only biblical distinction allowable between people. There should be no place in the world, understanding the gospel, uh, soak yourself in Ephesians 2 and 3 for a while and see how the gospel tears down every barrier. Uh, for Christians, it is the only acceptable division. We cannot, we must not, we should not be divided by ethnicity. We should not be divided by gender. We should not be divided by socioeconomic status. None of those things are acceptable distinctions in God's kingdom. The only acceptable distinction is those inside the church, those who are redeemed, and those outside the church. So what is an inside versus outside ministry? Well, the, we, we all ought to have an organized ministry at some point. Again, that's going to ebb and flow. We all ought to have a personal ministry at some point. But we all ought to have a ministry to believers and in all, we all ought to have a ministry to non-believers. Again, there's some inherent dangers here. There's, there's extra gravity towards the church. Because in our sinful, fallen state, we just gravitate naturally towards people who are like us. And so it's easy to let all of our ministry be towards those who believe, who, who think like us who talk like us, who believe like us, who have the same values as us. They don't threaten us as much. But we have to be very careful to make sure that, that we have ministry both to those inside the body of Christ and outside the body of Christ. Tim Challies posted a quote. I can't even remember who the quote was by. Uh, posted a quote this last week on Facebook that just really got me thinking. He said, uh, he said he's, the, the quote was something like this. It's not exact, but he said, I fear that many churches today have forgotten that we are to be fishers of men and instead are keepers of the fish in the tank. The call on our lives is not to keep the fish inside the tank, but to be fishers of men. We must have ministries inside the church and outside the church and, and, and there's, uh, there's many opportunities here. Hospitality. I know I, it's a drum that I, I beat a lot, but I believe hospitality, uh, clearly, 1 Peter 5, Romans, is commanded of every believer. It is a non-optional thing in our lives. And yet it is, a, it is a lost art in our day and age. That's a great way to minister inside the church and outside the church. Invite someone out to dinner or to your home for dinner, or to a barbecue, or to participate in your hobby. All of those are means of hospitality, of, of just welcoming people into your life. We shouldn't think of hospitality only as serving food. Anytime you can invite somebody into your life is hospitality. I often hear people say, oh, but, but I'm not very good at that. That's not my gift. We, we make good excuses Oh, you know, my house is too small. My, I don't know what it is. We come up with any excuse we want to not do the things that God has called us to do. But what I'm reminded here is of the parable of the talents. Most of us probably know this parable, right? A, a, a homeowner, a landowner is going away. And he leaves his possessions in charge uh, or in the charge of the, these servants. To one servant, he gives ten talents. To another servant, he gives five. And to another, he gives one. The person with 10 talents invests that and produces 10 talents more. And so does the person with five. And the guy with one, knowing that the master is exacting and doesn't want to lose what he's been given, he hides it and, and it bears no fruit. It yields no gain. And in the end, when the master returns, the guy with 10 talents says, see, look, look, master, I invested the 10 you gave me and here are 10 more. And the master commends him. And then, and then the second one, he says, look, you gave me five talents, 
And I invested it, and here is five more. And the master commands him. And then the, the one with one talent says, Master, I knew you were exacting man, reaping where you did not sow. And so I hid this talent, and here it is. Here's the one talent back to you. And the master calls him wicked. Maybe as an evangelist, maybe in exercising hospitality, maybe in inside ministries, outside ministries, personal ministries, uh, organized ministries, maybe you're a 10-talent person. Maybe God has, has given you great ability to be hospitable. Or maybe you're a one-talent person. But the point of the, that parable is that it does not matter how much God has gifted you with what matters is what you do with it. If God has given you a one-talent amount of hospitality, then exercise one-talent hospitality. If God has given you 10-talent hospitality, exercise 10-talent hospitality. It doesn't matter how gifted you are. What matters is what you do with what God has given you. And so we, we must invest inside the church and outside. So, there are organized ministries, there are personal ministries, there are inside the church ministries, there are outside the church ministries, and thirdly, there are what I would, I call, come and see ministries, and then go and tell ministries. In, in Jesus' first interaction with the disciples, uh, one of them, I can't even remember who it is off the top of my head, says, Master, where are you staying? And Jesus says, come and see. He doesn't say, you know, oh, I'll show you where I live after you come and die. Those conversations come, right? They come and they see, and they see who Jesus is and where he lives and what he does and how he acts. And then it's not till later that he comes back and says, follow me. But then, after they have come and seen who he is, and then they came and followed who he is, and then he called them to come and die to themselves, to take up their cross, uh, before he ascends to heaven, what does it change to? Go and tell. Go into all the nations, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Make disciples. Teach them to obey. we got to have some ministries that are come and see. Sometimes, again, I'm going to beat the drum of hospitality, though it's not the only one. Uh, uh, come and see ministries might be like uh, my growth group's having a barbecue. Want to come? And they come and they see what a group of Christians is like. Man, these guys aren't the weirdos I thought they were. But at some point, maybe it's come to church. That, that's a great part of our ministry. It can't be the whole substance of it, though. At some point, we have to go and tell. We have, to, we have to live out the Great Commission. We have to tell people what it is that Jesus has done. And so there's got to be both. And sometimes it's, it's an evaluation. Maybe you, you know somebody at work or a neighbor, and they know nothing about Christianity. They know nothing about what it means to follow Jesus. Do you think they're more likely to accept an invitation to church or to a barbecue at your house? Where is a better place for them to meet Jesus? On a Sunday morning? Or in your living room? It's a trick question. Both are good. Come and see. Come and see what it's like to, to, to hang out with a Christian. Come and see where they live. Come and see what they do. Come and see how they, how, they, how they love their wives. That's an important one to me. I'm not very good at it all the time. But, but the truth of the matter is, the fact that I, that, that I believe that men and women were created equally but differently is not a popular idea in our culture. I want those women who hate everything about what I believe it means to be a man and a woman to look at my wife and go, I want to be loved like that. Come and let them see. Let them see you uh, invest in your children. Pray before a meal. Have a meal around a table together. Read the Bible together. Sometimes we overcomplicate this. I really think we can overcomplicate what it looks like to do personal evangelism. Invite somebody after having engaged them in a relationship for a while to read the book of Mark with you. Worst they could do is say no. 
When you feel afraid of of sharing the gospel and having all the answers, just invite them to read the book of Mark with you and let Jesus do the heavy lifting. Let him do the work and the Holy Spirit as well. Or here's one, I've mentioned it before. Uh, You talk to somebody, they know you're a Christian, and you say, hey, can I ask you a question? What What does it mean to you when I say I'm a Christian? And they go, oh, you go to church and you believe you do good things and that God loves you. And and then you can say, you know, those things are important. That's not really what I think it means to be a Christian. Can I share share with you what I think it means? And then they might say no, and you say, okay, and you pray for them. Wait for another opportunity. Or maybe they say yes, and you can say something like, you know, I believe the fundamentals of Christianity are just really four things. That God is a holy God who is perfect sinless and just and that people created in his image have sinned against him and broken his law and deserve to be punished but God in great love and mercy sent his son to die in our place that we might be redeemed and forgiven and restored in a relationship to God and if we will just trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins rather than in our own goodness and turn away from our sins God is faithful to forgive us and to restore us into relationship with him and invite us into the goodness of his blessings for eternity and they might go wow I had no idea that that's what it meant to be a Christian. Or they might say, you're out of your mind. But either way, they heard the gospel. Right? We should never measure our ministries, particularly those out in the world, in terms of their fruitfulness, but in terms of our faithfulness. Sharing the gospel and having it rejected is far more faithful than just not sharing at all. So these are these three paradoxes that there are in ministry. That that each of us in varying times and in varying ways and in varying places should uh, should be involved in an organized ministry and a personal ministry. We should have a ministry inside the church. We should have a ministry outside the church. And we should be involved in ministries that are come and see, but also involved in ministries that are go and tell. Now, with that all being said and that massive introduction, and now you can see why we're going to split this into two weeks worth of messages, Let's look at three, the first three of six realities of our own ministries. Six realities of our own ministries. Number one, the first reality of our ministry pertains to our perspective. What perspective should we have when it comes to the fact that God has called us to be gospel ministers? And that perspective is joy. Notice the first thing Paul says here. He says, now I rejoice. I rejoice. I have joy. I am rejoicing to God over, well, we're going to see what it is he's rejoicing over or even through in, in just a minute here. But, but this whole section is connected to everything that came before. That's what the word now here does. All that we've seen so far in Colossians chapter 1, Paul points back to and he says, now because of all of that, I rejoice. And I want to, there's multiple layers to to what Paul rejoices in. But I want to point out uh, just two layers of that here. The first layer is who Jesus is. And if you recall over the last just three weeks, we've seen that Jesus is our supreme redeemer, that he has redeemed us and, and forgiven our sins, that he is not just the supreme redeemer, he is also the supreme person who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the church. Not only is he the supreme redeemer who can forgive us of our sins, he is the supreme person in charge of all things, creator of all things, sovereign over all things, and head of the church. Let's just stop for a moment there. We should be excited, right? It doesn't matter what's going on outside. It doesn't matter what the news headlines read. Because there is an empty tomb. 
Death cannot hold him. The grave could not keep him. He has declared victory over death, not only for himself, but for you and I who have trusted him. He rules well, and he is good. And when things seem chaotic, just focus on him. Focus on his goodness, his sovereignty, his grace, his peace. Remember that often when you turn the news on. But it's not just that he's the supreme redeemer and the supreme person. He's also the supreme reconciler. God's forgiveness of us is not cold calculation. He not only saves us from our sin, he reconciles us to himself. He delights in you. If you are saved, if you're forgiven of your sins, if Christ's righteousness has been applied to you, as we're going to see in chapter 2, God delights in you. He doesn't tolerate you. He doesn't put up with you. He loves you and delights in you and enjoys you. Rejoicing over us with singing. And so Paul rejoices, not only because of who Jesus is, but he rejoices over who we are. Jesus is the supreme redeemer, the supreme person, the supreme reconciler. But, but look at who we were and who we are. Verse 21, we were alienated, hostile, and doing evil deeds. But verses 13 through 14, God has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness in which we once lived into his kingdom of light. And verse 22, we are now holy and blameless and above reproach. Paul has great reason for joy. And so he says now, because of all of that, because of who Jesus is, because of who you and I are now in Christ, I rejoice. And the only acceptable response to such joy is to tell people about it. Like you've just been to an Oak Ridge Boys concert. To say, look, look at what God has done. And last week we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you would like, I would turn your attention back there. Because, and and I would encourage some meditation on chapter 5, verses 11 through the end of the chapter. But verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. It's fear of people that keeps my mouth shut. It's fear of the Lord that opens it. It's fear of people that creates anxiety. It's fear of the Lord that gives joy. And so knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Verse 16, we regard no one according to the flesh. Verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Verse 18, all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. We get to pick up the ministry of Jesus. He's the sacrifice, but he spent three years telling people about what he came to do, and now we pick up where he left off and continue to call the world to be reconciled to him. Because in Christ, he was not counting their trespasses against them. And he has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors, representatives for Christ. God making his appeal through us. And so we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And where does all that joy and that message come from? Verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The perspective of this ministry that we're called to is joy. Not because it's never scary, but because of what it means. If we're a gospel minister, it means we know who Christ is as redeemer and person and reconciler. It means we have been transferred out of his kingdom of darkness, out of the kingdom of darkness and into his kingdom of light. It means we were alienated and hostile and doing evil deeds and are now holy and blameless and above reproach. Joy, I believe, is one of our greatest witnesses. And so I think the question is, does the world see it? Does the world see joy in you at work when you're tasked with something you don't want to do? Does it see joy at home as a servant of your family? Does it see joy in the church when the rest of the world is going crazy and we are content in Christ? Does the world see that? 
Reality number two of ministry, however, and this is not contradictory to reality number one, is the problems of ministry. It would be a lie, it is a lie, to say that all of life as a Christian is just easy. It's a lie to say that that the biggest substance of the gospel is that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and happy. Happy, certainly. Healthy and wealthy, yes, but eternally, not necessarily presently. Sometimes God blesses people with great wealth and easy circumstances, but sometimes he doesn't. And then the reality is, Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. There is suffering and affliction in, in ministry. I mean, Paul outlines for us, again, in 2 Corinthians, I won't turn there for the sake of time today, but he outlines for us just how much he went through, being beaten almost to death multiple times, shipwrecked, imprisoned twice, stoned, run out of cities. I mean, imagine spending the rest of your life being beaten, persecuted, prosecuted, imprisoned. And yet his perspective is joy? Well, it wasn't in his circumstances. It was in the person of Christ and who he was in Christ. But as we seek to be ministers of the gospel, there will be difficulty in it. This is a difficult verse, by the way, admittedly. What does it mean that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, I would charge that it cannot mean what the Roman Catholic Church has said it, has, it means. The Roman Catholic Church explains this verse as meaning that Christ's suffering at the cross was insufficient and incomplete, and you have to add your suffering to it, and by the way, also your good works, in order to be saved. I don't think that can, be, can possibly be what Paul means in part because of verses 13 through 23 that have already presented Jesus as our supreme redeemer and reconciler. But look ahead with me, if you would, at chapter 2, starting in verse 11. In him, that is Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The only way you can explain away verse 24 as meaning that Jesus' death and resurrection was not sufficient on our behalf is at the sake of contradiction. That Paul is contradicting himself. That Jesus really isn't supreme reconciler and redeemer. He's just mostly reconciler and redeemer. Okay, so enough of that. What does this then mean? I think what it means is, is as Jesus told us in John 15, that that as they hated me, they're going to hate you. And as they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. We should expect the fact that our ministry at times will bring the reproach of people. Sometimes people will be mad at us for being Christians. Sometimes people will be mad at us for what we stand for. Sometimes people will be mad at us because we we tell them that people aren't inherently good and that Jesus is. But we can't control that. And when they do, we are taking up the same afflictions that Christ uh, went through in his ministry. What does it mean that he's filling up these afflictions? This is where this becomes really, really good news. So uh, Jennifer and I are working on getting healthy. We've been exercising and, and trying to eat better, and uh, we, we've been doing some exercises at home, and she put uh, great effort into using this app to create certain exercises, and some of them are timed, and some of them are miserable. And when they're miserable, you know, when you're doing a wall sit, right, sometimes it's helpful to see the clock tick down. Because with every second that passes, that's one more second behind me and one, one less second in front of me. 
the misery is filling up and it's coming to an end. And as we go through our lives and our ministries and life is hard and there is suffering and affliction and persecution and we're treated like Christ was treated, every day you suffer is one tick of the clock. It's one less day to suffer. One more day behind you, one more day ahead. Because Christ, the sovereign redeemer, head of the church, sovereign over all things, creator of heaven and earth, has ordained and allowed whatever suffering it is you go through. And he's with you. And he's experienced it. And he says, hold on. I'm here. I'm with you. But that's one last day. One less day this side of heaven to suffer. What does it mean that Paul is filling up these afflictions of Christ? Well, the amount of suffering that God has prescribed for Paul, it's, it's filling up. It's coming to an end at some point in time. And he's just picking up where Christ left off. But notice he sees these sufferings and afflictions as being for the sake of the body, the church. You want to give meaning to your suffering Suffer in ways that are good for the church rather than just suffering in ways that feel meaningless. Maybe by inviting somebody else into your suffering with you, they care for you, but somehow you care for them. Maybe when you're suffering and you allow the church to care for you in your suffering, you're giving them opportunities to have the ministry that they're called to have. If none of us ever need anything, then there's no ministry to be done. But God has made us needy. He has made us dependent. We need him. We need each other. So the reality is that part of our ministry will be suffering and that Christ is sovereign in it and that he has suffered too. In April of 1831... Charles Simeon, being 71 years old and having pastored Trinity Church, I kid you not, for 49 years, was asked by one of his friends, Joseph Gurney, how he had outlasted persecution and prejudice for over 49 years. Here's what he said. He said, my dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I am getting through a hedge, like a bush, when I'm getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are, are getting through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head has surmounted all his suffering and triumphed over death and let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. There's suffering in this world, but our holy head has come through successfully. Un, uh, I was going to say unscratched, but that's not true. He still bears his scars, but alive. And we too shall share soon in his victory. The third reality of our ministry is the posture. The, the, the posture First, we see that the perspective of gospel ministry is joy for all that it means uh, that we are gospel ministers. There are problems in it. We will suffer. But the third reality is the posture and that of servanthood. Paul uses two different servant words here. Minister, which is the Greek word diakonos or deacon, uh, which is, is in its most basic form just a servant, and that of steward. Uh, a steward was somebody who cared for the household of another. Joseph was, uh, was uh, Pharaoh's steward, but, but Joseph was also, um, why can't I think of the name of the guy who bought him into slavery in Egypt? Somebody help me out. Potiphar, thank you. Uh, he was also Potiphar's steward, a servant in the house of God. Paul says, look, who I am, I mean, he could have said, hey, I'm an apostle. There's not very many of us. It's the prime position in the church. But he doesn't. He says, I'm a steward. I'm a servant. We're not masters. I mean, think of the disciples clamoring along the road. Who's going to be the greatest? 
or, or one of the or two of the disciples' mom haul him to Jesus and say, hey, will you make sure that in your kingdom my sons are at your right or your left? Even the night before Jesus dies, as, the, as he's on his way to the cross, spending his evening with the disciples, they're clamoring for who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And what does Jesus do? He strips off his clothes down to his inner robe, and he gets a towel, and he washes their feet. And I don't think we have any understanding of it, just how disgusting people's feet were. In fact, it was so gross that Jewish slaves didn't wash feet. That responsibility was reserved for Gentile slaves because it was below a Jew. And here the Savior, the King, the Sovereign, the Supreme Person does the job that they think is way below anybody. They're fighting for who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, the greatest in the church, the most important, the most well-known, the most recognized. And Jesus does the most lowly thing he could possibly do. Now that's the way it's supposed to be for us. We're to be feet washers. We're to be servants. It's easy to read Ephesians 6, super important, and read about the armor of God, right? And think, I got to be armored up. Can I, can I charge us with this idea that the armor of God in Ephesians 6 is outside the church armor? Where the devil throws fiery arrows, where he seeks to ensnare where the world, the flesh, and the devil run rampant against us, when we go out into the world, we need to be armored up because there are real attacks on us. But I think the picture in the church is entirely different. I think Peter has the image of Jesus in mind washing his feet when he writes 1 Peter 5.5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Here it is. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I think as Peter pens these words, he's got Jesus down to his robe with a towel on his hands and knees, washing his feet. He says when we come together as a church, when we gather up here, we're not clothed in armor, at least not against each other. We're clothed in humility, in servant's clothing. Not fighting for who's going to have the greatest position or the least. Who's going to wear the biggest mask or not at all. Who's going to be most important, most valuable, most seen, most needed. We just put on servant's clothing and we wash feet. The posture of a gospel minister is not one of pride, it's one of service. Uh, there's a movie I saw a while ago, uh, Last Samurai. Uh, Tom, whatever, I don't know. I'm not big on uh, actors' names. Um, Cruz, that's it, Tom Cruz. He's uh, been living with this group of samurai for uh, several months. He'd been captured in battle, and he kind of fell in love with their way of life. But these samurai, they go around daily in robes. They, they go around in, in clothing. And then there's this scene at the end of the movie where, where they go out to battle and there's this picture of these warriors arming up swords and knives and armor and helmets and, and, and they're putting on what is needed to survive the battle. But they don't wear that armor at home. It's just like this completely different mentality there. I'm not calling for us to have a completely different mentality against people, but I am saying that in the church, and, and even to people outside the church, our posture is one of servanthood. Our lives should be evident that we are servants of people and not ourselves. That we're servants of God through people. You want to know how good you are at being a servant, watch what happens in your heart when you get treated like one. Because everybody loves to say they're a servant until they get treated like one. It'll be mo the most revealing thing about the kind of servants we are to each other. Do your coworkers, spouses, children, do they see you as serving? You know, I think our number one excuse 
when we think about ha- having ministry. Well, wait a minute, I got, I got to work. I got to take kids to practice. I got to have my hobby. I got to go to church. I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to file the taxes. And you're now telling me, Logan, that I'm supposed to have a ministry inside the church, a ministry outside the church, supposed to be hospitable to people, supposed to serve people. How do you expect me to do that? I think the number one excuse I hear today for why people cannot serve God is that they're too busy. I was invited by a group of guys when I was going to Bible college to meet with them one evening a week. And this was a group of guys who were holding each other accountable to holy living, who were holding each other accountable to spending time in the word and in prayer. And, and, and there was one week I went and I had not read my Bible at all for anything outside of studying for class, no personal time, no prayer. Uh, those things were, were void in my life because I was too busy. And so I was asked by one guy, he said, have you, have you been keeping up with, you, with your time with the Lord and investing in your own soul this week? And I said, no, I had this due and that due and this due, and I went to this place and I went to that place. And I, I had this whole like airtight, prepackaged uh, uh, argument and defense for why I did not have time to do what God had asked me to do. And after this lengthy dissertation for me on why I was too busy, one of the guys just looked at me and he said, you know, Logan, the devil can't make you bad. He'll make you busy. Man, that cut deep. If you're too busy to be a minister of the gospel to God's people and to the world, maybe you're investing in the wrong things. Maybe you need to consider where your life is laying up its treasure. Where moth and rust don't destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. Or here, where moth and rust do destroy. Are you filling up a U-Haul to be towed behind the hearst? Or are you investing in the kingdom? If the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. Our perspective in ministry should be joy. The problems are real. There is suffering and hardship and difficulty and denying ourselves, and our posture is servanthood. But it's good. There is joy there. Particularly maybe someday as we stand before God and hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Lord, you have proven yourself to be our good and faithful servant. To have met every single one of our needs, to have covered every single one of our sins. Those blessings don't come fully in this life, but in the next. Give us an eternal perspective in these things, Lord. And make us humble servants, willing to be treated like servants, willing to act like servants. And Father, as we do, as we prioritize our lives around you and around gospel ministry in the church and outside of the church, as we see that it is not, not necessarily just the paid professionals who are called to ministry, but that every believer has been called to ministry. May you work in us a deep and abiding joy and satisfaction in calling others to be reconciled to you. Father, let it be out of excitement and passion and joy because we have found such joy in Christ, who is our supreme redeemer, the ultimate and supreme person, who has supremely reconciled us to you. And you have transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness in which we once lived, out of the deadness of our sins, and made us holy and blameless and righteous before you. May we with great passion tell others about all that you have done for us, for your glory, for our good, and for our joy, and for their joy. In Jesus' name.
livid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease, my comforter. names up there. I guess I better start talking. How you guys doing? So uh, uh, let's see. I need my notes here. So uh, you guys know how to uh, go ahead and be seated. You guys don't need to stand while I'm talking to you. Very good. Hey, actually, I'll tell you just a brief story. Uh, when I officiated Jonathan's and Madeline's wedding, I forgot to tell everybody to be seated. That was, uh, you know, so I guess that's kind of a thing with me, forgetting to, uh, you know, Tell people that they can sit down. So, uh, yeah, all right. So um, just wanted to let you guys know. Uh, you probably know already, but you can continue to give through our website, on the app, by text, or drop your checks on the way out. And you, you guys know how to do that, I think, because we're actually doing uh, pretty well on our budget. So, uh, you know, God's been generous with us. We're uh, being generous with what he's given us, and that, I think, is a reason to uh, celebrate. So um, also... Uh, Take a look at your uh, blue connection card in your worship folder. Um, on the back of that, you can just write down any prayer requests you have, and we uh, do pray for those. And uh, you can just drop those in the box on your way out. And uh, also wanted to remind you that um, uh, there is this uh, there is this thing called virtual coffee and fellowship at 8:30 a.m. on Sundays over Zoom, and that's just kind of a way to connect. If you're uh, in the position where you don't feel like you can uh, come in, that's just a way to uh, still be able to uh, connect with people in fellowship, kind of like we're able to here at church. But if you're not able to come, uh, uh, you know, one week or, you know, all weeks, then that is a way that you can still connect with people. So uh, why don't I pray, and then we will uh, head our way. God, thank you so much for... Just, just what you have done for us and the hope that we have in you. And that when we remember that, when I remember that, that allows me to just, uh, just go out with confidence 
to serve with confidence because I know that um, that you ultimately are the one who has already done the work and so I can uh, even if even if things are difficult like Logan was saying uh, you know even if we're uh, still filling up our body with uh, afflictions, um, we can still have confidence because of what you've done on the cross and the hope